I believe Dr. Tobel meant to communicate with us by that means. Empty. The bomb site's gone. This is no simple crime that you contemplate. It's a staggering blow against your own country. We'd better hurry, Holmes. There's still time to save Farrell and Kern. Too late, Watson. By this time, Farrell and Kern are dead, too. What? bloody pit this is episode 137 and uh we're back back to the 1940s universal horror film subset of podcasts on this show um strangely enough not going to be a horror film this time out because we plan poorly yes we do yes you're going to be hearing this around the beginning of the october-ish age of the uh 2021 year and we've once again screwed it up folks and we're not doing a horror movie in October. And here you've filled up that dish of candy corn and uh, <laughs> you got the pumpkin spice burning and you're getting ready to hear us talk about German secret weapons. I, I, the hunt for German secret weapons. Yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. So tonight, joining me as usual, me being Rod Barnett, is... Troy Gwynn. And because we are covering a very special film tonight, also we have special guest... Beth Morris. And we're here because... Sherlock Holmes has got to be a spy master. He's not a detective. <laughs> Clearly, he's just a World War II spy. And if you think that I am exaggerating or that I am overemphasizing or being hyperbolic or hiding my anger at that concept, <laughs> you'd be wrong. Still, not that it's a bad movie. Okay, well, as far as spy goes, it almost turns the corner and stops being real spy spy and goes right into espionage well no no it's it's an espionage story and it's uh behind the behind the iron curtain before the iron curtain really existed of course (laughs) but still it's uh it's not a uh it's not what i want out of a sherlock holmes story even though i think it's a pretty good film so we'll start there and we'll complain in detail later (laughs) so uh, folks, glad to have you here. We are covering tonight Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon from 1943. What year are we in? Oh, holy hell. Uh, pretty sure it's 1943. I think we're in three now. Sorry. Yeah, I didn't write that one down. <laughs> oh my God. I should know these things. Yeah, you're in charge of the notes. I'm in, yeah, I'm, in char- I'm in charge of remembering dates. What kind of lunatic Usually is I do put the year down and I did not this time. <laughs> I, th- I think... I think We'll just chalk this up as uh, as a mistake Troy made. We'll go with that. <laughs> Blame so, me, folks. Troy. An utter failure. Damn you. Damn you for for not knowing the year. Nevertheless, uh, tonight we'll be covering this particular Sherlock Holmes film. And uh, we'll, you know, uh, 
it's once again we we decided to, to to cop to this follow along here in the universal horrors book year by year movie by movie and i just want to go out of my way and say um yeah this was the first film of 1943 that universal released that's part of this you know mm. part of this series that we're doing here and i do want to go out of my way and say i may have uh I showed you a few minutes ago. I may have started to collect too much material for mm-hmm. research on this stuff because, yeah. as I showed you, I picked up... By the way, I can recommend this book, uh, but be careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called England's Secret Weapon, the Wartime Films of Sherlock Holmes by Amanda Field. And uh, the only problem I, that I would have with it is that it is a little too dry at the beginning. Mm-hmm. spends a little too much time talking about the marketing of these films. Okay. And uh, things that kind of relate to that and going into detail about it. But once you get into the meat of it, it's really, really good. And it's a, it, and it's a fun book. And I've also gone out of my way because <laughs> having learned about this uh, book, uh, I had to have it. It's called 40s Universal Monsters, a Critical Commentary, written by uh, John Soyster, Harry Long, Henry Nicol- Nicolelli. I'm probably mispronouncing these names, but that's, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And Dario Lavia. So, very interesting book, uh, roughly the size of a phone book. I was about to say, that's quite a tome right there. Yes, yes, yes. But they, of course, also have included the Sherlock Holmes films, including this one. Mm -hmm. So, it is kind of a Mm -hmm. universal thing to do. (laughs) Oh, oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, sorry, that was bad. I apologize. (laughs) Nevertheless. You'll be here all week, folks, but we will not. (laughs) Yeah, I'll be here all week. They will leave because... They are disgusting. Uh, we'll get into the details on this film in just a moment. We just want to... One thing up top. Uh, I'll be, I'll, we'll, this will come out right at the tail end of September, right at the beginning of October. And I uh, just wanted to, to reiterate something that uh, I was reminded of, which is that if you're going to be in the Atlanta area the weekend of October the 9th and 10th, uh, there's a Paul Nashy thing happening, which is there's the, the convention known as Monsterama going on there. Uh, that I can uh, recommend because I will be there and they're going to, I'm going to be hosting a screening of three, count them, three Paul Nashy films. Uh, Dr. Jekyll versus the werewolf, the werewolf versus the vampire women and Count Dracula versus his great love. No, Count Dracula's <laughs> great love. But once you get to that versus thing, it's yeah. just, it just flows right out of <laughs> it you, does. don't it? But uh, that's going to be uh, in Atlanta at the, uh, the Marriott. Mm. Uh, going to be there. They finally talked me into doing this. And, um, you know, they're supposed to be paying me like $5,000. Um, yeah, right. But you I, deferred and said, I'm only in it for the art love of it. I'm, uh, I, I don't want to compromise my values. And, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an artist. Exactly. This is done for the art. <laughs> that's, that's not enough, folks. Come on down if, you, if you're in the area and want to see, uh, well, you don't want to see me. But to see Paul Nashy films projected up on a big wall. Mm-hmm. Instead of at home, and hey, remember, Doctor Jekyll versus the Wolfman hasn't been put out on Blu-ray yet. That's right. So there, try that on for size. When was the last time you were mm-hmm. able to see a werewolf movie in which the werewolf is also Mister Hyde? That's right. Mm-hmm. Never. Matter of fact, I don't think it's ever been done since. No. It was such a crazy idea. <laughs> what is it about to say? <laughs> it's only the only, the only it's, the fevered mind of Paul Nashie could conceive such a such a I concept. Do as many. As somebody saying, like, we're going to cure this werewolf by injecting him with Mr. Hyde. Yeah, that just sounds like a, that, that sounds like a great idea, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> which, which probably made some people fear when they saw the title Werewolf and the Yeti. It's like, does he inject himself uh, with, with a Yeti? Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, 
folks, uh, we will uh, take a quick break here, come back and dive into a discussion of Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon from 1943. Hey, I'm so glad you could make it. Welcome to my little podcast here, Bill Watches Movies. I'm Bill Mize, I'm the host and creator, and I'll be helping you today. Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography. And finally, at the end, we sprinkle just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. Now, we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now, to learn even more, you can always go to our website, BillWatchesMovies.com, for show notes, blog posts, resources, and just general dorkitude. Now I'm also on Twitter. Just search for Bill Watches Movies. I'm pretty easy to find, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks again for checking us out. Relax, enjoy the music, and then enjoy the show. Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, Mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Now here are the complete works of Wilhelm Shakespeare, an old German writer. I We move tonight. Orders from Berlin. Dr. Tobel is to be across the border before dawn. But we have had orders not to break into his house, and he hides there. Hasn't been outside in weeks. The Fuhrer wants no trouble with Switzerland at the moment. We must be very careful. If we can't break in, he won't come out? When the Fuhrer needs something as badly as he needs the Tobel bomb site, there is always a way. Dr. Tobel is interested in my scientific volumes. He's seen my forged Swiss papers and he believes I come from Lutzam. No, gentlemen, the price is much too low. I could not possibly sell so rare a book with such a price. I will induce Dr. Tobel to come on a visit to my shop as we pass the alleyway. You are interested in this book? A rare old set of Bismarck papers. One last warning. 
I've just had word from Berlin. The English fine hunter will try to take Dr. Tobel from under our very eyes. They are sending a stupid, bumbling amateur detective. His name is Holmes, or Holmes, or some such foolishness. You will never escape from Switzerland alive. Now, quick. Have me thrown out of here. And watch for my signal from Dr. Tobel's window. But, gentlemen, you promised to buy one of my books. I told you no. Uh, Stop bothering us. They are not so great. Price uh, yes. 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 Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon, released February the 12th, 1943. It's a brief 68 minutes in length, and it's supposedly based on the story The Adventure of the Dancing Men, which is one of the original Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, There ain't much of that story there. Yeah, I was about to say... And you just said exactly what I was going to say. So oh. thank you. <laughs> That's it. You read it's amazing. We are so we are so like, symbiotic here, so folks. We are so yes. I, yes. The first thing I was going to say was, "Hey, folks, it's based on a Sherlock Holmes yep, story." Yep, yep. And yeah, very loosely, loosely. Oh, so I mean, yeah, and yeah. Although and, it's a smart use oh, of hey, the idea, and I totally now, agree with the, that. The, I'll the, say right off the bat, that's one thing that I do appreciate is what because. They really literally just took a story that I think is one of the lesser Sherlock Holmes stories. I mean, in terms of not that it's a bad story, but it's certainly very, it's one of those that's just completely bound within the one location, Sherlock Holmes place. Just a few people coming to visit him, him basically just sort of narrating what he's done to solve the problem. Not much to it. And I really think that the more of the clever stuff that happened in this film are ones that the scriptwriter who... Uh, Edward Lowe, who actually was born in Nashville, Tennessee, of all places. Oh, um, really? Yes, he sure was. I did not know that. Uh, he, Edward Lowe wrote some Bulldog Drummond scripts. He wrote the script for House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, which we shall be getting to. Yep. But yep. Uh, I think what he did with this story was actually uh, the mo- most clever things about it are really, I think, the ones that he created himself. I wonder who came up with the modifications of The Dancing Men semaphore the the code because you know they add the layers to it and originally it's just a gangsta's oh it's just a yeah it's a simple code and it's done it's just it's a simple one-to-one code yeah Yeah. and then so somebody added at least two layers to it because they do the the men at the top that are one two three that Mm -hmm. tell you how to how to decipher it and so not only did they use it they also improved on it or Mm -hmm. made it much more complicated True. which you know actually should have been you know more of a challenge for for Sherlock there but I do have to say that in the original story he did not have when you're deciphering code you have to have a good bit of it in order to mm. pull it out what yeah. the, the mm-hmm. what the interpretation is what the the one-to-one mm-hmm. for characters and right. alphabet and so in the original story he only had a very, very short piece. Right, each yeah. each one was very, very short. And so he didn't have lines of characters like he had in this one and then kind yeah. of a, a guide at the top. So, Well, the I can see how coming across this story, you know, if you're looking for ideas for this particular film series, because the conceit of all these is that they're going to deal with World War II. And, well, and code is such an important part of the history of... Mm-hmm. wartime and especially world war ii how codes were developed and broken i mean that's right. such a key essential part 
mm-hmm. to military strategy. So you can see how they're like, oh, they're using the code. That's perfect. That'll be perfect to, to, to you know, segue into, you know, or to, to put into a story that's going to be about, it's going to reflect the fact that we're at war right now. Well, right. here's the thing that you, should, that you should know. Once again, information gleaned from uh, Amanda Field's book. Uh, when they... When they got through the intense negotiations with the estate of Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. um, they were dealing with his son, and one of the uh, one of the the things that were required is that they could produce three Sherlock Holmes films a year, mm-hmm. but two of them had to be quote unquote based on an original story, oh, okay. ba- based yeah. on one of the stories, and the third one. If they, if they produce a third one, it could be a completely original story, and there were, but there were still parameters that they had to work around. There were certain things that they couldn't do, like they couldn't demean the characters, they couldn't kill the characters mm-hmm. of, of Holmes and Watson, I mean. Right, right. Um, but that means that they had to, two out of three times every year, find a yeah. way yeah. <laughs> to wedge in the sometimes fictitious connection to a Sherlock Holmes story that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. Well, I guess this wasn't completely fictitious because they did. They did use, use the code. code. Yeah. Now there were no Americans. There was no lady in distress. True. There was no domestic problems. This was all no Chicago gangster. No, yeah. No, no. no uh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, were there the, even the multiple people at different locations? Like, were the on the code? I'm trying to remember. Was it the were the was the code names and addresses of the? You know? Oh no 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 no! It was it was simply, it was simply a message from yeah you know, okay. kind of a, that's kind right. of a threatening message. message yeah, yeah so it, it, wasn't even, it wasn't even uh, the names of separate people like it was an ex coming to mm-hmm. yeah. to try to steal back his love and then mm-hmm. it turns into exacting revenge. So yeah yeah, yeah. so. Once again, all they really take from the story, the adventure of the dancing men, mm-hmm. is the uh, the idea of a uh, a code, a cipher, essentially, mm-hmm. built around uh, drawn stick figures. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's about it. And to be honest, what you're right, wedging it into a story of this type is pretty easy, mm-hmm. because the way they construct it, this it, it it fits pretty effectively. Now, this being that this is the second of the uh, Sherlock Holmes films that Universal produced in the 40s. And uh, this is where well, there's a few things that we we should talk about up front, which is this is the the first this is the, this this is the first one produced, or I should say, I'm sorry, directed by the man who would essentially become the guiding force of this entire run of Sherlock Holmes films. Mm-hmm. That's the man who took over the director's chair, Roy William uh, Roy <laughs> Roy William Neal, mm-hmm. who's a hell of a director who I know primarily because he directed some of he, he directed yeah. several films that I'm a huge fan of, including. Some of our favorite little monster films that we're gonna mm-hmm. gonna play around with as the '40s progress, but he directed the rest of the Sherlock Holmes series starting here. I think there, there there's some really fun quotes about uh, essentially how much everybody enjoyed working with the guy, mm-hmm. and there's a great quote from uh, from Nigel Bruce talking about how uh, the relationship between uh, Bruce and well, I'll just I'll just quote. Uh, Nigel Bruce remembered Roy William Neal as, and this is a quote, a little man, very fussy about his clothes, and, like myself, he always smoked a pipe. He was an extremely kind and friendly person, and all his assistants and the crews who worked for him were devoted to him. Roy was an, ex- was an extremely able director, having a great knowledge of film technique and the use of the camera. During the many pictures we made under his direction, we found him a joy to work for. Basil and I nicknamed him Mousy. <laughs> during our first picture, and the name stuck to him from then on. We both became extremely attached to Roy Neal. Hmm. So, 
the the fact that he uh, shepherded the rest of these movies to the screen and worked obviously with those two men on the entire run of them, they were friends. They enjoyed working together. Yeah. Now, in my understanding too, is that he came into this film already an expert on Sherlock Holmes. Roy Roy Neal is. Yeah. Was it so? Do in watching this film, did any of you guys get that sense of? <clears throat> as compared to, I know we only have one film so far that we're kind of, I know we're kind of well, comparing these films as we go. I did think that in this film, I felt like compared to the last film, it was, it was still war, but for some reason, I thought I got more Holmes in this movie than gonna, the last. I would agree with that. And I, so I think that, yeah, maybe he did bring it to the forefront because uh, we got a couple... more of a sense of Holmes being Holmes in this film than I think the film before. Yeah, we got um, where he deduces that he was. there's a woman mm-hmm. involved, you know. Yeah, there are a number of little spots like that in the script where you're allowed to see Holmes doing that deductive reasoning stuff, which is great, yeah. Yeah, and that's what I thought. There, mm-hmm. This one had more of that. It was There was the... Uh, where he does the woman and then there... And, and we get him doing his disguises. He has... At least two. No, no, no he three. has two. No, he has three. He does, he does oh, the you're right. there are bookseller three. at the yeah. first, which is a great one. Then he mm-hmm. does the Lasky, Lasky, the dark oh, yeah, guy. Oh, yeah, where he pretends to be an Indian. Yeah, and then <laughs> he does the, the fakes the professor at the last. At the, to at the last. That's, yeah, to, yeah, to get kidnapped by uh, Moriarty. This is true. So, yeah, so he, I, I, I feel like there were more. There's more. There's more of him there getting the chance to be that uh, that sneaky, conniving detective, <laughs> and more theatrical because you know Holmes yeah. has that theater about him. So you get more of that theater of Holmes in this one, um, and you know, and he's breaking a code. He shows in the film they go through how he figures out he can take that piece of paper and expose it to uh, ultraviolet light. Is that what he's yes, saying? he does pull a trick that 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 is a bit more modern than the Victorian stories would have allowed for where he's using modern mm-hmm. technology. Let, let, let's put it, let's put it this way. There's, there's a through line between the two films that we've covered so far that kind of add a little bit to what I would refer to as a, a Sherlock's, um, let's say methodology in that mm-hmm. he's shown in these two films. Remember this is, these move these are, these are the, these are movies that have moved him into the 1940s. Mm-hmm. In the last film, we showed him as being very comfortable with things like radio and long distance, uh, long distance communication via that kind of thing, especially broadcast radio. In this, there's more technology that we're seeing that he's he's really on top of, which is all these uh, these luminescent uh, pieces and uh, you know constructing a glass plate to yeah. to project onto the wall so that he can reverse the image and see and see these things projected on the wall so he can really dig into this image. And so there's a lot lot more of him playing around with more modern technology. This is not stuff that would have been around in the 1890s. So this is the kind of stuff that is showing him as a more you know a, using more modern techniques or at least the uh, the mechanics that are available in the 1940s that wouldn't have been available, you know, 40 plus years earlier. But at the same time, this film also Maybe because we spend a lot more time in Baker Street, mm-hmm. also, and, and Baker Street just looks like it's you know eighteen ninety five. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it always right. does. That's the one <laughs> yeah. thing they kept. They kept that uh, little nest mm-hmm. where you walk in and it's Victorian England all over again. And so we spend a good deal of the running time of the film there, mm-hmm. enough so that it really feels. It, it doesn't feel like you're being yanked back and forth between you know nineteen forty three and eighteen ninety five. But 
that place being the only spot in the entire movie because the other locations, the other interiors, when you you know when you, when you visit them, they're modern. Mm-hmm. They feel modern. They feel the kind of spare, uh, non-cluttered areas that would be less Victorian. The furniture's different. Everything is like even mm-hmm. the lighting is different. So. The time we spend in this film at Baker Street kind of makes it feel more Sherlockian, at least to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see that. I just, I just felt like we got more time with Sherlock too for some reason. I mm-hmm. maybe I'm imagining that. No, I, I, no, I, I definitely came with that same perception too. And I oh. just, I, I once I found out that the director was already a, a big Holmes fan, you know, it just made me feel like maybe that he was maybe more invested in the actual character of Holmes than the director of the last one had been, you know, as, as far as in his mythology, you know, and, and that. Yeah, and I thought he developed, but we don't get that much Moriarty, which I really regret because Lon Latwell is the perfect Moriarty. He's he's so snake-like in this. Yeah, yeah. well, they even gave him that weird eye makeup kind yeah. of on his lids there, yeah. you know, and... uh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Moriarty. I mean, uh, uh, Atwell is great as, as Moriarty. Um, we'll, we'll get into some. Oh, I did want to ask y'all's opinions on the, how how Moriarty as the character is portrayed throughout the film. You know, if y'all, how y'all feel about yeah, that. But, you know, but but I mean, as far as the acting, I mean, mm-hmm. him being great to play Moriarty was terrific. But that he, I thought the director did a really good job of even with what little time he had with Moriarty, getting that relationship mm-hmm. that felt mm-hmm. like. That you know it, that was the relationship from the books mm-hmm. that you know he and Holmes had that one to one kind of oh we like you know we admire each other oh we get two verbal battles but yeah exactly right. we get yeah. two face to face I know I said they're thinking after watching them and you know I love them so much in Son of Frankenstein and then to watch them in this too it's like they're just you know they're just always so good together those two actors you know truly so good, truly you know. and sad to say let's. Let's say it up front to, to kind of get this out of the way. This is the last time the two of them appeared on screen together. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's right. because, I mean, in just in just about uh, a year or so, maybe a little less, Lionel Atwell would have passed away. Mm-hmm. And that is a shame. I mean, this is the last time. We, and they, they remember, they do bring Moriarty back in, yeah. uh, in The Woman in Green. Mm-hmm. Uh, but somebody else mm-hmm. played the role. Uh, Henry Danielle, right? Yeah, which is a good. Don't he get me wrong. In the last film, yeah, yeah, he was in the last role. In the last film, in a different good role. Uh, yeah, and, and you know he's he's a fine, he's a fine choice, but man, it would have been. It's a shame that uh, we don't get another Moriarty played by Lionel Atwell. That's true, and uh, I believe it was one of the films. Before Universal took it over, that Zuko played, um, yes. Zuko played Moriarty, yes. and he was good as Moriarty. I mean, he would, he, I wouldn't have minded seeing him actually come back. So. I love all three of those actors, yeah. and the, yeah. the three of them as mm. Moriarty is. is mm. I, I prefer Lionel Atwood yeah, over the three of them, three, but like all them. three of them are quite good choices, so yeah. you can't complain. Doctor Tobell awarded the Massingham Request for Physics in 1939. My dear Watson. There is only one Dr. Tobell. Without Mr. Holmes, there would have been no Dr. Tobell, I am afraid. But I thought you were living in America, sir. I have been working in Switzerland for the past two years. And Holmes got you out? In the nick of time. There was not a point he overlooked. Every contingency was foreseen and provided for. It was magnificent. Thank you, Doctor. The problem was not without its interesting points. Is there anything you would like, Mr. Holmes? Oh, thank you, Mrs. Hudson. Go to bed now. You gave me an awful fright dressed up like that. Well, good night, sir. He's quite right. You can't blame me for jumping to the conclusion that I did. He looked like a broken-down musician. Holmes, why didn't you take your fiddle with you? 
I never did think much of this dressing up business. It was necessary, I assure you. The Gestapo was close on our heels. Mm -hmm. This is Sherlock Holmes. I want to speak to Sir Reginald Bailey, please. Reginald Bailey? Is that the fellow who played Rugger for Blackheath? Yes, Watson. Oh. Hello, Sir Reginald. Holmes speaking. Yes, from Baker Street. I have Dr. Tobell with me. Oh, thank you. Very well, then. I'll meet you in half an hour. One thing that I fear that we will keep coming back to, at least for one more film, mm -hmm. <laughs> which would be the next of the Sherlock Holmes films that we cover here, uh, is the idea of whether it's a successful thing to have moved Sherlock into the 1940s. And mm -hmm. remember, it was not seen as... There was there were mixed feelings on that even at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to uh, I wanted to happily uh, mm -hmm. present this because I knew it would please Troy. Oh yes. Um, this is just a this is just a wonderful piece out of out of England's secret weapon, and I thought you would love this. It says one prominent newspaper film critic. Ah, I knew it. I knew you knew it, it was coming. <laughs> Bosley Crowther Bosley. of Bosley. the New York Times <laughs> expressed surprise that Universal quote should take such such cheap advantage of the present crisis to exploit an old respected fictional character, unquote. <laughs> so, okay, you would think that that means yeah. Bosley was not happy with this whole thing, but mm. the good news is that once he had overcome his initial reaction, uh, we should call it repugnance because right. he apparently went on at length about it, uh, he got much mileage and humor out of the situation. His role, after all, was to entertain as well as to help readers decide whether or not to see a particular film. He enjoyed the way Universal had given Holmes and Watson the blessing of eternal youth and set them to chase <laughs> Nazi villains in the war-consumed London of today with the same hale and vigorous tenacity as they showed toward opium smugglers years ago. <laughs> now, that gives you an idea of... Uh, Although we don't have, a, I don't have a specific quote from Bosley right. from the Universal Horrors book later on. I wanted, yeah. to, I wanted to front load that piece of information for you yeah, because yeah. we've been, we've been Bosleyless for a while. I know any Bosley sighting is a good. <laughs> so, yeah. so as like I wanted, I was like, okay, hold on, we gotta, we gotta pull that out there because we got to have a little Bosley whenever we can have it. And uh, <laughs> I just wanted you to know that he was reticent uh, yeah. and eventually, you know, but came around once the mm. films were in front of him. But I do think that it is. So once again, like I say, we've got one more of these that take place. Uh, the, ne the, the next one of these also is kind of a war film, mm -hmm. although we 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 shift to we shift to America in the next one, <laughs> and uh, which is <laughs> super strange to begin with. Before we get into what I would like to refer to as the the reasons they're included in this run of films that we're going to be doing, which is when we start getting into the ones that turn creepy on us. Yeah, right. But for this particular movie, as the second of the World War II set. Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm -hmm. And although I'm, I'm not confident in saying this, I would say that these three films, these first three universal Sherlock Holmes films, I think are the only movies in which... There have been so many movies made, I'm probably wrong, but are they, I think, the only Sherlock Holmes movies made that have Sherlock Holmes fighting Nazis? I mean, I, if you're asking me, I couldn't I, tell you. I, see, I can't I just, think of yeah, any. Yeah. I did a quick search, couldn't find any in particular. Because once you're past the war, you're not doing it to produce some kind of propaganda. Yeah, you're not yeah. trying to bolster people on the home front. You're not trying to... You Sell know, bonds, as we find at the very end of this film. I can't think of any more movies, but the radio show really did... Oh, yeah. Uh, they did mm -hmm. a lot. There, there were... A lot of uh, 
Bond selling during that period on the radio, and so they did lots of adaptations that, you know, hmm. part of that. But I don't earlier. think it was built into the show's no, stories, no. were they? No, 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 I don't think so. It was just part of an ad. It was just, just that, kind of a, you know. yeah, it was just by Bond, you know, yeah. before and after, you know. So, but I don't, like you said, I don't remember. I don't remember any other Nazi references. I, I don't I either. I can't. So. With these three stories, mm-hmm. we've got, and especially in this one, we've got, once again, we've got Spymaster Holmes. Mm-hmm. This guy is in disguise, behind yeah. enemy lines, yeah. during the during the conflict. Mm-hmm. The war is ongoing. How did he get there? Mm-hmm. When we get in it, when we come He drove. In, he drove. He <laughs> parachuted, parachuted in with his pipe lit and his, you know, playing his fiddle, playing his violin there. With Already in disguise. That's right. That's right. But it's like we just launch into the movie and he's there. He's already deep in the heart of this mm-hmm. Nazi of, of Switzerland. spy. Of Switzerland, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, he's infiltrated yeah. the spy ring already. Yeah. So he's... Yeah. And it's, you know, he would have to have been placed there by either the British or American government there, you know, as a, as a you know, uh, British government, we're assuming that he's put there as like a double agent. And it's just, mm-hmm. it is a little hard to picture Holmes agreeing to... You know, no matter how much you might want to help the war effort, it's hard for him to just. It's, it's not really. We don't want. It's. It's just can't picture him as 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 mm-hmm. the British government's. You know, double agent there. They just yeah. drop him in there. Hey, we're going to drop you in there. And it seems like he'd have a little more value <laughs> for his his, yeah. his brilliance beside than just being a uh, person in disguise. I guess. But. Yeah. So I was wondering, you know, mm-hmm. how that happened. I mean, it's yeah. it's yeah. it's interesting, and the disguise <laughs> is wonderful. Uh, but you know he's just he's there already, and it, yeah, he's in, he's in Zurich when the film starts, and he's telling yeah. these spies what they're gonna do next. We're going to you know go get this doctor and just take him over the border, and he's obviously got it all pre-planned when he gets there because yep. well he's been there long enough to actually set up. I mean because there's that there's a cast off line because uh, well at one point they they. Have a couple of servants pretend to be him and the and the scientist. Yes, mm-hmm. and, he's like, and there's that cast off line where he says, oh, don't, uh, "Don't worry, when that when those guys catch up with him, I've got that taken care of." And it's like, oh, really? How do you have th- that taken care of? Thank you for bringing oh. that up. I was exactly going to say that same thing. I was yeah. going to say like that's because, yeah, because uh, they should have at least have him say something like, you know, I've arranged to have the police meet them all. You know, uh, exactly because like, so, something to just say. Said you basically just sounds because it looks yeah. like you're sending these guys exactly. off to their like, death there. Exactly when they run off, it's like, man, I hope those guys are. <laughs> but he yeah. said he had a plan. But uh, yeah, a little more elaboration would have been appreciated at that. Point. Right at that same point, though, we get the doctor. Oh, uh, what's his name? Tobell. Tobell. Doctor Tobell, of course. He ends up kind of taking Watson's place in that uh, Sherlock says, "Oh, you know, I've got a plan. This is going to happen." And after he explains to him what's going to happen, that they're doing this, he says, "The doctor says, oh." That's so simple. And then Sherlock gets to say, everything's simple once I explain it to you, which is usually what he <laughs> says, says to, to This is true. This is true. Okay, going to use the plot synopsis, apparently written by Dario Lavia in the, uh, the 40s Universal Monsters, a critical commentary book, because I like it. So mm-hmm. here we go. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, now, uh, how many, by the time we're finished with this series... How many more books will I have added to my library? <laughs> Focused on just this decade. I fear the floor will fall in. Oh, God. Well, I mean, we remember, eventually, Mark Clark's putting his book out on the That's 40s right. films yeah. as well. So, nevertheless, uh, the film begins in Switzerland, Zurich, 
where a musician sporting regional dress is playing a picturesque xylophone in a tavern as Sherlock Holmes, impersonating an elderly bookseller, enters to sit at the table of two Gestapo agents. As a counter-espionage ploy, he proposes a plan to send them a scientist, Tobel, whom the emissaries of the Reich have been stalking for four months. But in truth, Holmes ends up distracting them with decoys, that would be the two servants, and is able to escort the academic to a field whence, safely, he takes off in a plane bound for London. Now, that's the first few minutes of the mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. And already, I mean, we've got full Spymaster Holmes in mm-hmm. charge, mm-hmm. handling things, getting it done. I don't think, I wonder, even in 1943, do you think anybody was fooled by the the elderly bookseller before we were told that it's Sherlock Holmes. I it's can't like, imagine that they I mean, were. It's pretty obvious that Basil, you know. However, I do feel like they set up his last disguise very well, though. Um, oh, I actually, oh, completely agree. You know, now the middle disguise is a great disguise, even though you see him putting on disguise, so it's not trying to trick you. But I love the the wharf tough, yep. the kind of wharf tough uh, character he comes up with is kind of fun. But the last one, I, when he disguised himself yeah. as the last professor, they actually the way they set that up is I think actually catches you off guard the first time. Agree, you know, so that's actually pretty Now well the uh, the bookseller, I think if you if you were if you were somebody who'd never seen Holmes before, that no, would no, probably no, I'm not, ta- I'm not oh, talking yeah. about the characters sure. in the film. He means oh, the audience. Oh, I mean, there's an audience, audience. Oh, no. this film and you're just like, yeah, yeah you're automatically like, yeah, that's that's Holmes. Yeah. yeah. No, no, there's, there's no way for the Gestapo. I mean, the, yeah. you know, this is you know, the 40s. They're not going to know what he looks like. I'm just they're stupid just... Gestapo. Uh, <laughs> Nazi idiots. Uh, <laughs> if we learn nothing yeah. else from Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's that Nazis are they are idiots and they cannot shoot straight. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that they steal the Nazi's car. Oh, yes. I, love, I do that's, love that's that they... That's one of my favorite yeah. parts. They, they, let, they let the, not, the, the Nazis yeah. trundle off after the decoys <laughs> and then steal the car. Yeah. <laughs> and I, But it does bother me that the information about the fact that yeah they definitely are stealing their car is it is in a is in a, a a much later added voiceover line from Basil Rathbone and it's just like I don't think we needed that I think it'd be cooler if you just not had that line there and yeah. let the people who are thinking about it go they're stealing their freaking car <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> but nevertheless. The London that greets him, that would be Tobel, has paths strewn with debris and the shadows of the sandbags that the civil defense put on each corner. In other words, we are in London in the Blitz, people. Its lights have been extinguished to bedevil the vision of the German bombers, but as a result, nocturnal thieves have, quote, become quite a nuisance, according to an accommodating Bobby. Tobel brings, brings with him a calibration system that works with millimetric precision so that aerial bombs will hit their targets with great efficiency. After an exciting test, the high command, led by the ubiquitous Holmes Herbert, he's an actor who turns up repeatedly in this in these films, uh, green lights the invention for immediate production in large numbers, but then the unthinkable arises. Tobel, a Swiss citizen, demands the right to lead the process himself and, without offering further details, leaves to begin work on his own. Now, of course, this freaks everybody out, but at the same time, they really want this, and so they're going to kind of let it fly. <clears throat> now, what this, what this is kind of skipping over, this 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 synopsis will will circle back to later on. Uh, we see that Mr. Tobell is a bit of a player because he has a British girlfriend <laughs> here in London that he and he yeah. slips away from Watson, who's yeah. fall, who's of course as Watson would, yeah. fallen asleep now, when he's supposed now, to be guarding him. See. I have a little something 
that kind of irks me. Which I, I'm a big, I, I like Watson, and so sometimes I get a little irked about the way that he, he, he is, is played. I agree. Uh, and uh, it's not Nigel Bruce that I have oh, yeah, a complaint I lo- about. I, I love, I, I love him. Yeah. He's a great actor. But in this film, we we get very little Watson, and he's he he gets he does get two good pieces, uh, one where he points out that the chest is heavy and ends up saving Holmes because they stopped the guy. Yeah, and make that's them. the that's the big yeah. yeah that's the big one. And then later he accidentally triggers Holmes to think, oh, I need to reverse the code, and so you do get like mm. you well. Know, also, he's the first one to recognize that it has to be a code, which right. is very interesting. Sherlock is not the one who immediately says, oh, the dancing men are a code. Mm-hmm. It's Watson who goes, oh, it's a code. And immediately sits down and he goes, okay, well, you know, the most ob- yeah. the most obvious one, it's in English. He is, he is It'll be, E will be the, the most, most common yeah. one. And he just immediately starts to work, even though that that's not going to help him. He's the one who jumps first into the let's figure out mm-hmm. this code section. And that's another neat little thing. So. Yeah. But when you're first introduced to him, he's waving a pistol about like a wild man. Well, somebody's broken into his house. And he, I mean, he looks like he just got rolled and he's waving a pistol around. (laughs) He just got woken Um, up. I know, but... I'm sorry. And, I'm, I'm defending the bumbling Watson now. I feel like I feel like somebody's got to step up here. Hold on. <laughs> but then after he realizes, oh, oh, you know, it's it's my friend and you know hmm. this doctor person, he keeps pointing the pistol at Holmes. Oh wow, I didn't think about that. I didn't either. And this like, is a guy who served in the military. He's like and, just yeah. You know, yeah, yeah he, okay. Yeah. He, yes, and exactly what I'm going to say. He's holding the pistol at point. And like waving it between holes. <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but you're right. And, I didn't think of that. You're right. And it's like, okay, <laughs> it, no, he. Mm, okay, it kind of makes yeah. me unhappy because okay, we know he's a military <laughs> man. Makes me unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> we can tell. I'm with you. And then you know, right after that, okay, now I understand he probably was sleepy. They woke him up, and but he says, "I'm going to stand guard." Stop. Right. And so. Um, oh, no, I just I love your description. <laughs> he looks like he's just been rolled. It's like he's just out of bed. Hell, God damn it! <laughs> but, but then he says, "I'm gonna, you know, mm. I'm, you yeah. know, gonna stand guard." Oh, the fact that he's just so right. Contis- I mean, consistently right. I see, right. I, and I understand they had to do that because mm. they needed to shoehorn in the only real female role. Although I loved that the pilot was a female. And that was cool. That was very cool. Mm -hmm. That's right. The pilot that flies them from uh, Zurich to London is Uh, is a woman. Yeah, it's even better. That's not even commonly known, which is even nobody says anything about it. Nobody nobody thinks twice about it. Yeah, Yeah. I thought that was very cool. I mean, so there's not a lot of female in this Mm -hmm. movie, and they had to have it because if they hadn't had the girlfriend, they wouldn't have had the code. And so I understand that he had to get away. But at the same time, he, you know, Watson's military, if he was going to stand guard... He's going to stay away. He would stand guard. I know what you're saying. I know. Well, yeah, there's that thing the second time you watch this movie in your life where you're going... Why didn't he just drag that chair over there and sit it in front of the door? (laughs) Then he ain't leaving. And you knew you were talking about in your... uh, What's the critic's name? Bosley. He talks about how they're... Bosley Crowther. (laughs) How they're eternally young. Oh, well, yeah. Well, it was like they subtracted, like, gave him 40 years back and made him 90 all of a sudden. It's like old. Watson is suddenly decrepit and going <laughs> to die at any minute, you know. 
I can't keep my eyes open. I'm so old. <laughs> um, <laughs> Once again, I, with with Holmes too, is I gotta say we we've got the return of our our, our favorite. Or at least favorite hairstyle to comb forward. Oh, you know, again, it's okay. like, what why? is why? that? Because we I, think we speculated last time that it might be because they were trying to make him look a little older. Uh, yeah, but it's or, to me, it's still just such a bad choice. Or, he looks so much cooler with his hair combed okay, back. Yeah, or unkempt. I, <laughs> I, I swore I was not going to... After spending so much time bitching about it last time. It's like, well, I hey, look, if, if we rag on Paul Nash every episode for his various wigs, we gotta, we got we to gotta rag on Basil for his well, comb I mean, forward. Well, I mean, the good news is, at I least, think, by the... It's either the next film or the film after they finally gave up on whatever Do the they? fuck yeah. they were thinking and we get it we get it swept back okay. the same way that that yeah. the pageant drawings always had him with the swept yeah. back hair yeah. and we go and luckily that stays that way for the rest of the series i have to admit it it didn't seem to get in his eyes as often as in the last in, film. as in the last yeah. film. I, I, yeah. I guess they took the scissors to it yeah. i don't know <laughs> But I mean, yeah. Ugh. He did like one of he did look like one of the little rascals in home in this one. There was like, <laughs> there, like an old little rascal with his hair falling. Just something clawed yeah. through his hair. He's like making eyes at Darla yeah. for guns. But, but yeah, I mean, it's it's always going to be a struggle with with Watson through this whole series. You know, yeah. as far as how much I mean, in this one, I felt like Watson was a was less in this film than he there was less Watson business in this film mm-hmm. than the last film but that's probably to his probably to the film's advantage you know I mean I think yeah. he they overall have, except for that whole introduction which I think the whole idea is as soon as we introduce Watson he's got to be bumbling you know he's got to mm-hmm. do something bumbling True. as the film goes on he becomes less and less bumbling mm-hmm. maybe because they introduced Lestrade in this film you know and so now they've got a second character who's going to be clueless as well you know right. or like so so now he can kind of bounce some of watson's cluelessness onto lestrade's there and we've got some <laughs> now, of that, you know. now watson watson can make fun of yeah because it seems once it gets about half the film on he's basically there just kind of telling people like no listen to holmes you need to listen Ooh. to him here you know and that true, kind of thing true. so okay well as a precautionary measure dr tobell divides his invention into four parts and entrusts each part to a different scientist there in london of these, we only see one, Professor Hoffner, when Tobel is eventually, of course, kidnapped. <laughs> yeah. And the movie plays coy, not letting us know uh, whether these are uh, Reich, uh, Reich people, the, mm. the, whether these are Germans or whether they're criminals or exactly what's going on here. Of course, it's eventually revealed to be <laughs> Professor yeah. Moriarty, of course. The only clue that is left behind are some hieroglyphics that he himself concocted, which is a succession of dancing little men that he uh, this part of a note that he left with his uh, with his girlfriend. Uh, they, yeah. they they say fiance by the end of the movie in a roundabout way, but hey, yeah. you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's like you know they're going to be married, folks. So yeah, yeah, yeah. everything's living, good. Living in sin. Everything's clean. Yeah, they weren't doing anything yeah. when we yeah. when we faded to black. We That's swear. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Lord. Uh, and it is this succession of dancing little men that uh, Holmes eventually is able to uh, able to deduce to have a part of a. He, it's part of an alphabetic system of code, of course. Now, uh, in the story on which the film is based, the adventure of the dancing men, a client brings home several of these pictograms that have been appearing to him in his home night and day, and that are posing a threat that frightens his wife. Uh, and in the story, of course, Holmes figures it out using the whole idea of the most common one's going to be the letter E because we're talking about English here. But in this, it's a bit more complicated and therefore 
that's good. So yeah, I think yeah. that even if somebody in 43 was familiar with that story, they'd be like, oh, okay, they're pulling that from it, but that's still not going to give you the answer. Mm-hmm. And that I love the fact that the film actually puts that thing in there where Watson's immediately like, well, we've done codes like this before. Mm-hmm. And the way the, the way the dialogue is in the movie, it even seems like they might be directly alluding to someone who's paying attention uh, the the adventure of the dancing man. In other words, we've seen something a whole lot like this before, hmm. and I and we so therefore hmm. we know yeah. Yeah. most common was going to be yeah. E, and we'll move from there. Hmm. Well, well, upon taking note of the drawings, of course, Watson sits down, pencil and paper in hand, says that the little man, uh, most frequently repeated, ought to be the letter E. Starts to decode each line until he ends up with gibberish, and Holmes assumes that certain initial numbers signal a certain variation in the cor- uh, in the number of each letter, and upon applying his theory, reconstructs names and addresses of the three first of the scientists. On rushing to warn them, though, he finds them already dead and their parts of the secret bomb site stolen. Inspector Lestrade, and this is, of course, the first uh, this is the first film we get Inspector Lestrade. Is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the character reoccurs in, I think, five or six of the, uh, the films for the rest of the series. Uh, well, Lestrade remains baffled, uh, but when he interviews Tobel's lover, Charlotte... <laughs> Hmm. Or fiance, fiance, hey, hey, hey. (laughs) Holmes realizes who is behind the conspiracy and the assassination. Who might it be? Could it be Charlotte? No, of course it's not Charlotte. (laughs) That's stupid. (laughs) It's an arch villain, maybe more fearful than the Nazis, who enters upon the scene. It's the great Professor Moriarty. Now, take note in the film. They put an extra I in his name for no good I reason. I know, that was Moriarty. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. they still strange. pronounce it. Yeah. Especially Basil Rathbone. Yeah. When pronouncing his name is pronouncing it correctly. And everyone else does as well, but it's it's very odd that they stuck that extra I that in the name. Strange. That was like, strange. What the hell is but going on there? Out of curiosity, I checked the timing just, just as I, I always love watching how these, you know, scripts are so and how things are so constructed on a plan and acts, you know, is that they, they, you find out that Moriarty is the villain at very nearly, the, I mean, just almost exactly the halfway point of the, the running point. time. It was just like, that's not yeah. accidental. That's, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's almost coming 30, to It's yeah. like 34, 35 yeah. minutes in. It's like, yeah. click, Lionel yeah. Atwell's on, in your face. You're yeah. like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you all right, I will. The truth, and that's a fact. The blighters in Davy Jones's locker have eaten the fishes he is, deader than a blinking mackerel. Nah, ain't that worth a fiver? <laughs> I tell you, he's alive. And I say he's been dead these many years. <laughs> you lie. Easy there, Jack Brady. I would say you were wrong and Mr. Sherlock Holmes was correct. Good evening, Professor Moriarty. Welcome, Holmes. My men have instructions to bring anybody here who inquires for me. They haggle while I watch. An admirable disguise, by the way. It fooled them completely. Of course, it didn't fool me. I never intended that it should. I meant only that it should bring us face to face. (laughs) Just like old times, eh? A battle of wits, of superior intellects. I may say I've been expecting you since I made off with your precious Dr. Tobel. And his code. Ah, yes. And his code. But valuable as your doctor and his code are to my business, I think my main interest in this affair the chance it gives me to battle with you again. Mariate, this is no simple crime that you contemplate. 
It's a staggering blow against your own country. That doesn't concern me overly. I shall make greater profit from this affair than all my other adventures put together. Then you refuse? Oh, most assuredly. In fact, I intend to ensure the success of this venture tonight by liquidating you, Mr. Holmes. I uh, think that is the American phrase. Quite. You, the one man intelligent enough to stand in my way. Now, of course, the professor is played by, as we've already spoken, as we've already brought up because we can't stop ourselves, played by Lionel Atwill. And Atwill, he's en- he's he's enjoying the oh, hell out of this role. He is. He's not... Lionel Atwill can be gloriously over the top at times. Mm. He, ne- I never feel like he's he's too over the top, no matter what he does. Right. But here he's in a he's in a much more controlled performance right. Right. than some of the stuff that he would do in, in in some of the other horror movies that he made, especially mm-hmm. where he's still believable as hell. But he's not. But he can be over the top. Here he's not over the top, and I like that his Moriarty. And I'm, I'm sure somewhere there's a book that compares every single actor mm. and every single performance of this of this particular character. Ooh, I gotta find that book. <laughs> if it exists, somebody <laughs> tell me. Yeah. But I love the fact that Moriarty, as portrayed by Atwill, is definitely a narcissist. He's a man mm. who believes that he's the smartest motherfucker mm. in the room. Mm. But he's also aware when he's having those two confrontations with Holmes that this is the man who can match and possibly best him mm-hmm. and he gives him that he's not saying that he's not possibly going to outsmart him he's giving Holmes his due as an intellect and I think that that plays out very well and it may be one of the reasons why the two of them play so well together is that the way Atwill seems to be approaching the character is yeah he's a narcissist he's a criminal he is at heart a bad person but he has respect for Holmes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, in the first interaction, Sherlock actually attempts to play on Moriarty's... Ego. Patriotism. He says... Oh, well, yeah. Really, oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Yeah, you, you're right. You, yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, you, you could stop this. You know, this is your country, too. And if you do this, this, you know, it, yeah. this is going to you know, destroy the country. And of course, you know, unfortunately, he's much more interested in money than he's uh, exactly patriot, patriotic patriotic uh, flammery. He just sees that as ridiculous. <laughs> in this, so. mm. Exactly because he's pure science. Uh, do you think it'd be more likely that Moriarty would do something like that in order to just sell it to the Nazis, or would it be more more believable if he were to just wanting it actually to sub, you know circumvent both sides and get it for him himself? Well. Eh? Get the the bomb site. Oh, play, playing both sides, it might might have been might have been something that if he put in front of him, it might have been a good idea. Mm. If the money got offered, he might have uh, been more than willing to flip to one side or the other. That's true. Yeah, that's true. He's done that before. Or just hold both sides. Just hold London in terror himself. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of what I was thinking more of. You know, I guess him doing it. But um, in that interaction, he also says, and I think in both times he's he's like, I'm sorry, I got to get rid of you because. You're the one thing that could possibly put the kink in my hose here and or stop the plan, and so I'm going to off you. Well, it's that wonderful quote where he offers him, you know, different choices of how to how, how he should kill him. Yeah, and it's kind of happens both times. The first time that he's with him, right. he points, uh, 
Moriarty puts, points a gun at him and he says, Oh, you don't want to just shoot me, do you? Mm-hmm. That's too plain. That's What's he say? It's a... Well, he says any thug could do that. Any thug could do that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, and, and Moriarty's like, oh, you think I'm just going to shoot you? Oh, no, no, no. This is just to keep you keep under you control. I have something really good planned for you. And, mm-hmm. and, you well, it's, it's that wonderful quote. It's, uh, what, what shall it be, Holmes? The gas chamber, the cup of hemlock, or a simple bullet through the brain? And, of course, you know, it's at will, so it's a brilliantly yeah. delivered line. So. And that's the second one. Yeah. And then... Holmes again get because Holmes is goading him both yeah. times, yeah. and then and the, that's where he does appeal to his ego because right. it's like by making Certainly. him realize yeah. this is but you know is this really this is kind of beneath you to to do it this way you know and he he gets him where he wants him because he's playing for time mm-hmm. and so if he he gets him to give him a slow death mm-hmm. there's yeah. a chance for his backups to get there and save the day so. And so he finds a roundabout way to convince Moriarty to, quote-unquote, kill him in a way that will take the maximum amount of time, so hopefully he'll survive. And it. has one of Atwell's, or Atwell's greatest great lines in the film is, always the needle, eh, Holmes? Oh, I, I know, that, that was, was a great. One, precisely. That's a now, that awesome. is, in yeah. this entire run of these films, yeah. I, th- I thought this was interesting, and once again, I'll read this straight out. While both Holmes and Moriarty vie with each other in terms of arrogance, there is a deathless exchange that would end up being the only reference in the entire series to the character's famous affection for cocaine at 7%. Insulting his captor, Holmes says that the methods that Moriarty has mentioned to dispose of the detective are typical of a small-minded ruffian and suggests that he be exsanguinated slowly with a catheter. Moriarty, filled with malicious pleasure, replies almost to himself, the needle to the last, eh, Holmes? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, that is Mm -hmm. the only reference in these films to that. And of course, if you know uh, about the previous two films that were made at Fox with with Rathbone and and Bruce, uh, at the end of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, there was that line that often got excised right at the end where Mm -hmm. he calls for the needle. Yeah. It's like the case is over, so I'm gonna go back to the cocaine. Yeah, going back to the cocaine for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is uh, this is very this this is very interesting. I uh, I had completely forgotten that there was a reference to uh, that aspect of the character yeah. at all in yeah. this series of movies, and it's interesting that that was allowed through mm-hmm. in the 1940s because man, that would mm. be. Yeah. Boy, that'd be a no-no. Well, it's it's. I mean, it probably literally because unless you're one, unless with the whoever's screening the film, whatever censors look at, unless he's a Sherlock Holmes reader himself, he it probably just went right I, over his head. What it's a reference to, if man, but, but the character was so popular, it would almost yeah. have to yeah. have been known, surely yeah. by by somebody. Well, well maybe somebody just. I mean, that is a line of line. I mean, yeah. cutting that out would have been mm. just. <laughs> Oh, it would have been horrible. It would yeah, have been yeah. here. And, oh, no. oh, yeah. I just because it was so good. It was such a great well, one. I want to ask a larger question of both of you because uh, the original title of this script was Sherlock Holmes Fights Back. Hmm. Uh, positioning it as the wartime story that mm-hmm. it is. In other right, words, right. this this would be much more in line. Uh, the title would place it much more in the category of being uh, a wartime action film to a degree, and it is much more spy thriller than it is mystery. Yeah. That's for yeah. sure. I mean, there are a few mystery elements that get placed within the plot line. But Sherlock Holmes and The Secret Weapon, I think, might be the better title, but Sherlock Holmes Fights Back, I kind of feel like that'd be great, but I think that maybe one of the reasons why it's probably good they didn't use that title would be, well, that really does sound like a B-movie. 
And yeah. these movies, mm-hmm. although yeah. technically B movies to a degree, they were spending more money on them than really the the, the movies that they were that they were calling B movies at the time. They were yeah. spending more money on these on these than those. He says, realizing that he sounds like <laughs> these a moron. did those, these did those. But uh, I do think that Sherlock Holmes fights back would have sounded a bit B. Oh yeah, that sounds yeah, very B. It, yeah, I agree. But that was the, that was the original title of the script hmm. anyway. Wow. Yeah. Well, if it was Sherlock Holmes and the something plot or you know, secret weapon, and it's really is it a weapon? It's not really. I guess it is a weapon. And it is secret. It's I mean, a bomb, but it's a bomb site. It's, it's a bomb not. Site. I do you consider that? Weapon? You know, talking about that though, that's something that I liked about this film too. That I thought was actually effective was this idea of this bomb site that's going to make the Germans. You know, their ability to target that much more accurate because that's something that sounds kind of feasible. I mean, it's, it's like everybody, oh, yeah. everybody knew that the Germans, of course, in the American, everybody was fishing for, you know, what's the thing that's going to give us the, the edge. Well, it, you know? it's, it's a believable concept. Yeah, and that's, that's not true. always that's the case yeah. in some, you know, film set in wartime, right. especially with dealing with the Nazis, you know, it's because, you know, there's always, you know, you know a lot yeah. of times it or comes like... An army of zombies. Or... <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, you know, especially in serials and stuff, and you get a lot of that, you know, it's like the Germans have developed this ray that renders everything invisible, or, you know, just stuff like... Has a kind of science fiction. It, this disintegrate, actually, it disintegrates iron. And this is actually something I can picture somebody watching oh, yeah. in a theater in England at that time and seeing, and this would actually be a pretty scary concept. Right. This sounds like something feasible. Exactly. This oh, wait a minute. We're, living, we're, living, in, we're living yeah. through, and they're emphasizing without yeah. double underlining, hey, yeah. man, London's being bombed all the time. Yeah, there's only that one scene where they walk through rubble. Right, right, right. You only see that one time. It's not as it's not as near as present as in the film before it, as far as the awareness of this being right. England yeah. under being bombed. You know, although every time you see the streets, I mean, there are those yeah. sand the sandbags yeah, right. stacked along stacked along the streets. So, yeah. did you guys get that the test bombing were two different types of bombs? Well, I did not. No, no. One, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like stock it's, footage. It's, well, it's obviously it's stock, stock footage, footage, but yeah. no, I didn't pay enough yeah, attention to the various bombs. One, no. one bomb had a, a very, like, bigger, fiery explosion, and the next bombing was a carpet bump run, run oh, yeah. where it went... The first bomb was... <laughs> and then the next one was... The explosion. Well, I, I didn't even pick up on that. I didn't mm-hmm. pick up on that the whole time. I was just saying, yeah. I guess I was more just thinking, like you know, like yeah. I could see why this would be pretty scary to somebody yeah. in England at that time. I was, I was just, I was they just got whatever pieces of stock yes. footage they could get and just. Threw I, it. Yeah, I just. I, I was just hearing Crow T. Robot in my head going, deploying stock footage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, all right. And my sound effects are so good. Um, but yeah, so I think I really do think that it was two different. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I mean use the stock footage you have. You're not going to go out and blow up some shit. <laughs> we can't afford to do that. I mean, yeah, we're spending a little bit of money on this, but there is no way in hell. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I want to say real quick, there's a couple of uh, fun, recognizable, just universal, those stock players. It's, uh, as, uh, oh, during, yeah. the, during the scene where... Uh, where Holmes does disguise himself as uh, what's the name of his uh, uh, Risling or whatever the name of, I'm trying to remember what the name of his character is his 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 uh, the, drunk his I mean his his wharf rat uh, character that he disguised himself is as it like Ram Ram Singh Ram Singh or something like that yeah something anyway is it Ram in, in that Singh, Singh because, being, by the way Ram Ram Singh that's, sounds Chinese doesn't it not <laughs> just that it sounds like a character out of a spider pulp novel <laughs> yeah it does actually no and I could never figure out what Pegleg was actually saying yeah. 
He, he yeah. said his name a couple of times, and yeah. it's like, what is he saying? I do not know, yeah. But the the the, I, the little guy that's following him around that you think mm-hmm. is one of Moriarty's guys, it turns out to not. I thought that was kind of neat. Okay. It turns it, out to yeah. be the, the guy. That guy was in that time. Um, and that is one thing that's like when the doctor, when he, he pulls his shenanigans and goes mm-hmm. off on his own, mm-hmm. and they're like, you know, oh, this, you know, this should be in a safe. This should be in a safe. Yep. And don't think this is a good idea, but they have to let him do it. Even Holmes says, you know, I knew they were going to immediately try to get him. So I didn't understand why. I I understood why they didn't let the police have a presence there, because that would just point Mm -hmm. to where he was. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, But I didn't understand why he, Sherlock, didn't have. He usually has all those, you know, under ground even if they weren't the irregulars but that sort of yeah. person that yeah. sort of you know that yeah. sort of person that he has and that's his. i would have thought that he would have someone constantly mm. watching mm. the doctor you know yeah. once he got through the first night of him running off <laughs> <laughs> but so well this was this was so so the the character i'm talking about mm-hmm. it's, it's actually i was just gonna say he's played by michael mark uh who's uh, who's he's the kind of shorter guy that again yeah, that's yeah. A, that you think is going to be one or more that turns out to mm-hmm. not be that turns yeah. out to be for the other side who's been I guess spying on or seeing what's going on he's right. uh, he was in uh, he was in uh, Frankenstein he was the, the 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 guy whose daughter is drowned you know oh, in Frankenstein yeah. he's later shows up in the mummy's hand he's also in Ghost of Frankenstein okay. he's in House of Seven Gables so seeing him he's one of those just great Universal Stock yeah. Company players but the other one is. Um, the bigger of uh, Moriarty's henchman uh, is Harry Cording, who uh, is yeah. Harry Cording, who I think uh, my most familiar role. I mean, I recognized him then I saw it, but uh, I think one of his more prominent roles was he's in the Black Cat. He's a uh, Bela Lugosi's manservant in the Black Cat. Oh, okay, and, yeah. And he's uh, but he was in so many. He gets his, he had two hundred eighty nine credits. Wow, all all bit, and they're all going to be hen, you know henchmen, henchmen butler. Yeah. But he but he was also yeah. in the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, The Invisible Man Returns, House of the Seven Gables, wow. The Wolfman, okay. Ghost of Frankenstein, uh, the last Sherlock Holmes film we did, The Voice of Terror, and The Mummy's Tomb. I mean, that's that's <laughs> so he's just one of those great faces. I mean, you see him was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm in a Universal film. It's Harry Cording. Yeah. And now that you mentioned it, I, the the first guy, not the second guy. Yeah. I do now remember seeing him mm-hmm. in different things. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Seen him a bunch of times. Yeah. And he's always, once again, you know, little village, little village man or, you know, village or, or you mm-hmm. know, or the magistrate or just, you know, those, those kind of those roles like that. So. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, of course, I mean, I, without without going through the, the intense details of the final act, of course, we mm-hmm. we we, uh, we don't kill off Sherlock Holmes in this film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he does survive to the he end. He does. We do, and, do kill off Moriarty, though. We think well, we do. Well, Moriarty is... Moriarty ever really... I know. He's, it's off screen. It's off screen. I, I got a question. Yes. Why do we never check for bodies? <laughs> well, they could check for a body in that case. They'd have had to... I they mean, dropped it was him in the sewer. They dropped him in the sewer. What do you want them to do? Yeah. Repel down? I mean... <laughs> We got to wrap this film up. We got two more minutes before they start going. Hey, Watson, be an old fellow and go down in the sewer and look. Make sure. Would you please go down in the sewer and collect that crumpled body? (laughs) Now make sure that the spine is all jangly. Proof. (laughs) No, Elm and Holmes always show up again. They're never dead, even when they're dead. (laughs) Well, um, just some questions to kind of frame, uh, kind of to kind of touch base on some ideas that are that are interesting in the in recognizing the time period in which the film was made i think well 
you know, like like the previous film, Voice of Terror, mm-hmm. this this kind of presents uh, the war, the at that time ongoing war, as a, the kind of the great inescapable crisis of its time. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's there immediately from the opening scene in Zurich, mm-hmm. where even Switzerland is presented as a hotbed of you know intrigue. All these different things are going on, and at the same time, one of the things these movies are. I mean, they're Let's talk about them as propaganda. That's what mm-hmm. they are. These things mm-hmm. are, are, are are entertainments for the masses, but they're also built in such a way so that we're, we're presenting to the public that are going there for their entertainment mm-hmm. uh, a kind of, uh, shall we call it a bolstering of the uh, kind of stiffening of the spine of, of the public because it's very easy for us to look back at World War II as you know the good war, the one that everybody felt was the right war, but that's not true during the time. During the time, everybody who's experiencing that is going through peaks and valleys of feeling like this is a good idea and this is a bad idea. And part of these kinds of films mm. being built the way they were was to bolster the public, to yeah. keep them... The support. Yeah, <clears throat> you got to keep the support as high as you can. And this is, this is part of it. And one of the interesting things about this is that one of the scary things that this movie does kind of dig into a little bit is if you're watching this in England in 1943... One of the things this presents is the possibility of your own countrymen working against your country's best interests, working Mm -hmm. to make a profit by selling war secrets to the enemy. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that that kind of amorphous fear, that kind of rather large fear of uh, a fifth column, shall we say, working within your own nation against your best interests, is in this film first presented as a possibility because it's a mystery what's going on, but then carefully shrunk down to a single evil individual that we all know is a villain the minute you hear his name because he's Professor Moriarty. He's the Napoleon of crime. He is a singular villain, a person who is driving a wedge by his own personal will and desire to make money into this this conflict. He's trying to make money off this conflict in a way that immediately allows for the, the viewing public to take that fear that they mm-hmm. might have of mm-hmm. people who mm-hmm. might not, I mean, you know, might not necessarily be on our side. It might be living down the street and boil it down from a large amorphous fear into a much more containable, fictionalized fear of a single individual, a, cr- a criminal element that can be rooted out and dealt with rather simplistically. Mm-hmm. It embodies the evil. Correct. And without that as being part of the, the storyline, the, the, the idea of presenting these films, and I think that may be one of the reasons why we're really lucky the film series moved away from this, is that if you continue to do that, you're presenting a fiction mm-hmm. to the public. This war, regardless of how we see it from you know, even just a, you know, a decade or so after the fact, all the way up through now, is, you know, the, 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 the fissures... Within a society, were there all the t- all the time, the same way they are mm. right now. And there were people who had you know had dissenting opinions and who felt that perhaps it was a bad idea to be doing certain yeah. things. And and yeah. they're, they're, you know people were aware of this. Their neighbors might be someone they not might not necessarily trust because their political bent was of a certain different type. So this film and the next one especially. Well, let's be honest. They kind of. With this one especially, by bringing Moriarty in and having him be the singular villain who's working against England's best interest and therefore also against America's best interest. We're all allies here, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right? They're kind of moving away from something that they got pretty close to being a dangerous uh, theme in that first film where 
the traitor, the once again singular traitor, uh-huh. working against England's best interests, was a member of the aristocracy. Now, granted, we we mm. concocted this whole background where he was substituted back in the early what was it early. 1920s and so he's really a german so he's not really british so we're you know we're, we're kind of sidestepping that but he's still a part of the government as part of the aristocracy yeah once again a single individual here moriarty a single individual someone who of course we're talking about an adventure film you've got to have a bad guy you've got to yeah. have somebody that you can catch mm-hmm. imprison or kill to make <clears throat> the narrative function the way it needs mm-hmm. to function for a story like this but it is a weird fiction <laughs> To have this very large villain of the time, which is an entire other nation, mm-hmm. be boiled down to a single individual for a story. And the last film, Voice of Terror, they were kind of getting close to something that the movies might not allow. <laughs> because if mm-hmm. you're doing propaganda and you're kind of pointing the finger at the aristocracy, it's like, hey, 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 let's stop fighting amongst <laughs> ourselves here, people. <laughs> Let's, let's point yeah. out that he's actually a German, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. We can all agree yeah. he was actually There's a German. No, no pure, We're not making no, this up after the fact. No right? born and bred British or whatever, English <laughs> right, or whatever right. turned on his country like And that. in this, okay, okay, this is a British citizen who's turned against his own, but, I mean, he's a criminal bastard. I mean, yeah, we right, all know right. he's a criminal yeah. bastard. Yeah. He's Bad Professor Moriarty, right? Yeah. I don't think they could continue down this road very long mm. because you've got to keep coming up with a single like mastermind bad guy mm. that has a good reason to be you know a worm in the apple who's got a good reason to be the villain working against the good guys because that's the way these stories are constructed. So it, it, it's odd to me. I can't remember. Here's the weird thing. We've got one more of these. The next one uh, mm-hmm. uh, that takes place in you know that's Sherlock Holmes in, in Washington. And I can't remember if the story does the same thing there because I haven't rewatched that yeah. one in years. But it's bizarre that so far it's mm. this. It's, it's like they, it's like they they were going to do this ballsy thing in the last movie. And, oh, evil evil rich bastard! <laughs> <laughs> and they shy away from it by yeah. making him you know yeah. a, a secretly a German a plant, yeah. right? And in this one, well, <laughs> we've got a ready made supervillain. Let's yeah. use the ready made supervillain. <laughs> And it's like, so in the third one, you can't, you, you, mm, we can't yeah. do the rich guy because if we have like two two British members of the aristocracy who are so, mysteriously somehow German, boy, that'd be weird, right? So it's almost like, oh, uh, let's go to America. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can have a, an American bad guy. Yeah. But it's like, different. They, so they're kind of, they've kind of trapped themselves mm. in that. These are Sherlock Holmes stories, but they're also propaganda stories. No. But you, they're B-movie adventures. You've got to have a bad guy mm-hmm. because if you don't have a bad guy, you can't do what you would normally do. You don't. You don't. It doesn't matter in a in a in a nor, in normal times outside of wartime mm-hmm. if your bad guy is kind of an indictment of an entire an entire section <laughs> of the world. Oh, you know, let's let's talk yellow peril for just about five minutes there. <laughs> uh, you know, let's do that. We can do yeah. that. Just the ah, oh, those stinking Chinamen. They'll kill mm-hmm. all of us eventually because well, they'll overwhelm us. And by the way, my God, we should probably try to wipe them out as well. <laughs> ha ra ra, yeah. England forever. And you can't do that here right. because this is a very specific time period where you're trying to construct pop propaganda. And so mm-hmm. it's weird that you wouldn't no- notice it if you're just watching these for. The, the fun, the fun, yeah. the mystery, the adventure. Yeah. But as soon as you realize each time they have to, that we have to have a single villain. We have to have this single bad guy that we can, you know, deal with yeah. by the end of it. And it's like, they got, they, they had some trouble with the whole idea of it being a rich guy the first time around. Mm-hmm. 
And this time I was like, well, we're just going to go to Supervillain. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that thing that I hate so much in the third Indiana Jones film. When it's like, oh, we got into trouble with the second one because we had to create a villain. (laughs) We had to show a bad guy being a bad guy. And this turned people off. And they were like, oh, that's disgusting. Why are you showing us this stuff? (laughs) So you know he's a bad guy. So in the third one, we just go... We just hey put some Nazis on screen, have Harrison have it's Harrison Ford look directly to Cameron and go Nazis. I hate these guys. And it's like well no shit. Yeah. It's like it's almost as I, I honestly in modern day if this were made, it, <laughs> Nigel Bruce or Basil Rathbone would look to the camera and go Professor Moriarty, what a bastard. You know it's like yeah we know he's a bastard. Well he only fell sixty feet. They could just have brought him back. Well they do back they do bring him back later in the series. I mean he's played by a different guy. I mean, but at this point, all you got to do is just say, Lionel Atwell. Lionel Atwell, what a bastard. Do you notice that uh, Sherlock Holmes just kind of casually murders Moriarty? Um, I don't think it's casual. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's pretty I casual. Think, oh, we didn't know. I forgot to tell him that us recently. I don't think this is true. I like what he does here because <laughs> he's still, and this is, this is kind of subtle acting uh-huh. from Rathbone. He can't follow the rest of them out. He was near death when they finally showed up and saved his ass. He's moving really slow. Yeah, he is. He's, it looked like it took all he had yeah. to pull on a jacket and to pick up Kept that pistol. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> I don't think, I, I, like I say, I don't think it's casual. I think, he, I think he's like, okay, I know this asshole. <laughs> I know that if I set this trap for him, he'll fall into it and I won't have to raise a finger. And to be honest, he might not have been able to raise a finger or much yeah. of one. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I kind of like that. But the reaction to it is like, um, I can't. Do you remember what exactly what he says? He's like, oh, I guess someone should have told someone him. Someone should have told him that I swapped the you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. every day to him where he switched his. Yeah, no one told him that the trap door was open. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's sad. That's, that's really so sad. <laughs> well, now, Let's go, Watson. Let's go get some Here's tea. what's terrible. I wonder, and I guess we will. I guess, I guess I could run downstairs right now and, and watch the woman in green and find out. But I wonder if they reference the fact that he should be dead. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. we have to. Yeah, have to were there that. any gators in that sewer? Well, the question becomes, oh, you know, I guess he landed on a mattress, or well, I don't know. Who could it, what could it be? Was there an airbag down there? <laughs> it was the corpses, corpse of all the people that he had already dumped. <laughs> yes. was like, just a pile. Uh, that, that, there, there's a funny possibility. I like that quite a bit. Yeah, they do. Sherlock Holmes. An improvement on the other makeup. Don't you think so, Professor? So you think you've beaten me, Holmes? I have. The real Hoffner is safely in the hands of Scotland Yard, but I still have Tobel. Now I shall sell Germany the inventor instead of the invention. You've learned nothing from him in spite of all your torture. Otherwise, you wouldn't be trying so desperately to collect the four sections of the bombsite. A keen observation, my dear Holmes. But observe further that you are now in my hands, and I have profited by my last mistake of allowing underlings to attend to you. Holmes took my place, and while the Nazis were inside with him, he instructed me to attach a small apparatus underneath their car. He's a brilliant fellow, Holmes. I helped him prepare the apparatus. Did you really, Doctor? That is, I poured in the luminous paint when you told me to. Very clever, Doctor Watson. The apparatus drips at regular intervals, leaving a trail of luminous paint. I see, leading us to Moriarty and Mr. Holmes. 
so I, I feel so inadequate because, you know, Rod shows up to these things with his big old satchel of monstrous tomes all strapped up and, you know, and, you know, chains and all this. And all here, the books. All I have is a measly little magazine that I bring here. But, oh, uh, but it's a video watchdog. But it is a video watchdog. He's uh, got his belt around his books and his pocket protector <laughs> exactly. on. Exactly. You know. So this is Squint, squinting through my Coke bottle eyeglasses. That's right. Now you bought books. Right. So, <laughs> I found another book to read. <laughs> I found another book. Look, 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 look. Well, this is an issue of the the venerable video watchdog. Uh, this is actually number one hundred and three, where they did a uh, oh, yeah. sh- where uh, Tim Lucas wrote a review of of uh, one of the earlier uh, or the first, I guess, DVD box set collection. Yeah, the of, MPI uh, sets. Yeah, yeah, the MPI sets of, and so just as a way of, of, of introducing a couple of the thoughts and getting your responses to them and a couple of uh, kind of observations, things, or see what you think sure, out of them. Yeah. I'll read a quick little thing from our buddy Tim here. Uh, first thing I think he points out that I laughed at because uh, I had it written in my notes too is the fact that uh, uh, William Post Jr., who plays Dr. Tobel, looks so much like Richard Burton, like a young Richard Burton. I actually even had that oh, in yeah, my notes. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he's Burton. a good-looking guy. Yeah, and sure enough, he, uh, and sure enough uh, Tim writes here, he bears a remarkable resemblance to a young Richard Burton. Um, but then anyway, he goes on to say, uh, a studio shot Baker Street exterior shows Holmes' home base untouched in the midst of bombed out rubble. There's also an art direction slip that suggests 221B as a house address rather than an upstairs apartment one. This is true. That, 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 having saw a that. 221B, I didn't even notice that. Well, it's over the door. Oh, yeah. It oh, shouldn't right, be so. over the door. It should be. It should, yeah. it should, it should it's be. It's not a street address. I didn't even catch mm-hmm. that. Uh, so, yeah, it says. <clears throat> he says, but Neil fudges the all current time frame a bit with an extended, old-fashioned sequence of Holmes skulking around Soho in one of his more obvious disguises in search of clues. The final showdown between Holmes and Moriarty is more melodramatic than modernistic, and the script, uh, by Edward T. Lowe, a veteran of Charlie Chan and Bulldog Drummond programmers, yeah. diminishes both Holmes and Moriarty at one time or another, depicting the latter as more of a pretentious, rarefied thug than a true criminal genius, and allowing Holmes to be, as the scene is played, unsuspectingly caught in a death trap of his own suggestion, though he would seem to have suggested this slow method of being bled to death deliberately to allow his compatriots time to effect his rescue. Yeah, he's... He sort of answers his own... That's one thing I thought was kind of odd about the comment, and I don't really agree... The first part of the sentence doesn't isn't backed up by either mm, the film or mm, the last part of the sentence. Yeah. Now, I will agree that it did make me think of the fact that, you know, Holmes does play really fast and loose with his... His apparent with his potential fates in this film. I mean, actually, oh. I think I was a little more bothered by the earlier one of him in the in, in the chest. Like oh, in this yeah. case, I, he left the trail for. Yeah, uh, he knew they were on their way. So he he, he was just thinking the, they would the, they they would surely yeah. show up quicker than they did. Yeah, but now the earlier one where they put him in the you know where he also wanted to that be one, intended one, to be captured. He nearly got killed there. Yeah, that one was there. a little. Yeah, that one was bothering me more. Yeah. I think. Than, and I than thought this at the end, so. I, I really I couldn't remember the film and I, and I couldn't remember. When you know they just they're just walking off with the chest, I thought, oh, I can't remember how he gets out out of this because yeah. I thought, oh, if he, and that's uh, the one, and that's yeah. the one that shows Watson being yeah, a, yeah. you know True. being exactly. fast enough on the uptake. Yeah, yeah. Um, he says as the movie approaches its confused finale, cutaways to Watson and Inspector Lestrade and a lost rescue star arouse frustration rather than suspense, and Holmes himself is rendered less alert than any hero should be in the final reel by Moriarty's ghoulish transformation apparatus. I mean, transfusion apparatus. Once again, I, I, I don't agree. That don't really see that. I kind of thought it was more effective that Holmes, even the fact that he was near death and almost was drained too well, much I mean, of too yeah. much blood, that he actually still manages to... do what he, The way the, way the, the film is, mm-hmm. the way the whole situation is presented is 
the he he knows that Moriarty intends to kill him, and so he's intelligent enough to come up with a way to suggest a longer death, a longer, more drawn-out death, mm-hmm. so that he's got a better chance of surviving this encounter. I, I thought know. the first encounter was much more chancy than the mm-hmm. second one. Agreed. Because mm-hmm. I, I think he, like you said, I think he had a, thought he had a, a plan in place, and he really didn't expect yeah. him, them to take as long to get there. As well, they, he didn't mm-hmm. think that these thugs that he was dealing with were going to be aware of who he was. And mm-hmm. that is that was his screw up. That's how he ends up in that. That's how he ends up in that case. How he ends up in that chest, I should say. So yeah. But um, he said he expected more. See, I thought that was gonna say. I think that that time, I think he expected. I thought he was intending to be captured too, or expected Moriarty to figure out. I thought because when he gets captured and they've got him, and Moriarty comes in, he says, "Oh, I knew that you'd be." You know, there's something to the effect of, "I knew that you would." Mm. What, what, what it seems to me is Holmes thought he was going to be in a position as he was in that second time where they're going to be having a conversation. Oh, oh he didn't think like he was just necessarily yeah. going to like, I'm getting rid of you this. I'm, yeah, you know, I'm going gonna, gonna to kill you. He knows Moriarty and he knows that he's going to want to talk. Mm-hmm. And that's not what happens there. He doesn't play for, he, he doesn't have the chance to even play for time. The second time he has mm-hmm. a chance to play for time. Yeah. Right, one last thing here is uh, he mentions that this is one of the actual PD titles in the series. Uh, has been for a long time, public domain yeah, yeah, for well, a long time. So he talked about how there's like a, been so many awful copies for years. He mentions including uh, he says uh, there was even a he says a horrendous peach and beige colorized edition. <laughs> so oh that my was god! Out. But anyway, he's talking about the resolution of how how nice how much nicer it looks, you know, in in this particular set here, and. Uh, um, he says, uh, perhaps the best endorsement of this version is the fact that I noticed for the first time ever that Atwell makes the mistake of looking directly at the camera for a moment as it begins to dolly toward him at the 41 minute and 35 second point. He said, it's a subtle glance, but to feel Lionel Atwell breaking character to look right at you is a goose-fleshing experience. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm going to go back and look at Yeah, I know. I was thinking of it too. Like, man, I've got to go back and see that point yeah. there. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to make eye contact. No, no. One thing I want to say: it was no. hilarious. How many bars did he go to in oh. that disguise? He can hold, he he hold his liquor, man. <laughs> he went just, to a lot of bars. There was a, a lot, lot of bars. Of bars. <laughs> it was a. It, it was a. It was a dangerous pub crawl. Maybe that's. Maybe <laughs> yeah. that's why he misjudged things so bad. <laughs> yes, that's our like, titles: Sherlock like, Holmes and the, the dangerous, dangerous pub, pub crawl. crawl. That's what it should have been. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, d- d- disguised as a ferner, yeah. drinks too much and gets thrown into a chest. Oh, i got to say, in one of those bars, the one where the woman's singing, uh-huh. she's singing a song that we cover. In, I know. In, 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 the I'll Drunken be, Sailor, she's yeah, singing one of the songs that's we cover true. in Secret Commonwealth. Yeah, uh-huh. my Irish band, we're doing this Drunken Sailor. It's an that old is, I, yeah. I, I, I thought that you're right. Up, up, up she rises. Rises, what? Yeah. With us, it's way, hey, up she rises. But yeah, uh-huh. it's semantic. So. Yeah, exactly. Okay, time to Get dive into uh, That's right. one of my favorite parts of the show, Critics Corner. Uh, let's see. We'll start with Harrison's Report, January 2nd, 1943. This second in the series of modernized Sherlock Holmes detective stories should satisfy the followers of this type of entertainment. The picture offers a substantial portion of action and should prove to be an acceptable supporting feature. There you go. All so right. that's positive, right? right? Next, uh, the daily, uh, the New York Daily News, January 5th, 1943, uh, Dorothy Masters. Rating, two stars. Holmes's various deductions and escapades on behalf of the valuable mechanism don't add up to much of a picture. Though no fault, uh, no, I'm sorry, through no fault of Basil Rathbone, nor any lack in Nigel Bruce, 
The new film has too many dull moments and too many fantastic ones to rate with the previous chapter, Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror. Script trouble is largely to blame, although some of the discredit falls to director Roy William Neal. Hmm. That's, that's a bit harsh. Yeah, really. <laughs> sure, uh, I'm sorry, this would be the New York Sun, January 1942, Eileen Creelman. Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon is far from Conan Doyle's days. The story is much like one he might have written. Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, Bruce are still perfectly cast. Sure. The New York Post, January 1943, Irene Thierer. These are all are women. They all named, and they're all named Irene. Irene. <laughs> well, no, no, Eileen. Eileen. This is Irene. Uh, a lot of women doing the reviewing here, though. Uh, plenty of suspense, lots of punch-packed action, glib direction, and right neat performances. If you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, this one won't let you down. Cool. New York Daily Mirror, January 1943. Good fare for mystery movie addicts. Picture is well acted and ably directed and should go a long way towards satisfy, satisfying the ghoulish appetites mm-hmm. of the members of the Rialto Murder Club. That would be the the, mm. the uh, theater where it's playing. <laughs> The Hollywood Reporter, December 30, I'm sorry, December the 23rd, 1942, so this was a, a, a pre-screening. Basil Rathbone assumes the part of Sherlock Holmes with the suavity. Suavity? Suavity. 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 That yeah. is his stock in trade. He's being suave. Yes. Yeah, suave. He's, he's suave. <laughs> he's Rico Suave. There you go. Bingo. Swoopy. Slide right on in there. Are we shocked that there's a word that I can't pronounce? <laughs> we should be. And to finish off, the film daily, December 28th, 1942. A film that should do well on the bottom of a double bill despite its mildness. Basil Rathbone does another of his smooth jobs in the role of the sleuth. Director Roy William Neal sustains the mood of the film capably. Good acting does much to put the film over for the type of audience for which it is intended. In other words, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know it's what that a means. Bit of a, I don't know if that's little, down. You know, I don't know if he's looking down his uh, nose yeah, at us. Sounds like a little left-handed kind of, kind of left-handed kind of compliment. You stupid people like this. Now, this is going to be something that uh, I didn't want to talk too much about uh, the direction in this picture because I think that there are much better examples of what uh, the director was capable of once he had this, <laughs> once he had this series by the throat. Essentially, it was in complete control. But this is still, I think, a, a well-directed film. The the movie moves at a good clip. I mean, you got to. I'm, I'm assuming they were under the under the gun to bring this thing mm-hmm. in under 70 minutes, no matter what they did. Right. So pace, you betcha, gonna move, gonna move, gonna move. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll talk about uh, what I see as the very big strengths of Roy William Neal as a director in future films, where he's able to play not just with. Uh, <laughs> Not ju- not just with his capabilities of uh, working well with actors, but also with his ability to work very effectively to bring out the creep factor in almost any scene. Uh, he's not he's not working at that in this film, right. although he does get some nice creepy stuff going in a couple of scenes here and there. It, they all fold directly into the type of story being told, and so we're not yet into the what we're here for, which is the <laughs> horror <laughs> films. We're not we're not there yet. <laughs> Sorry, Halloween. But yeah, yeah, not not there yet. So uh, on the one to ten scale. Um, where do you put Sherlock Holmes and the mm. Secret Weapon, Troy? Yeah, um, I gave it a seven. Okay, you know, I did. I did enjoy it. I mean, I thought it was, you know, I think it definitely told the story well. I think I liked it a little more than Voice of Terror. Okay, um, 
Voice of Terror had some some effective visuals, a little more effective in the visual department, I thought, because the fact that it really emphasized even more the 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 fact that London had to be in a blackout, and so some of those scenes in the clubs where the lighting was so low, you know, was yeah. really effective, and also the fact that you know that whole last part that took place in the bombed out kind of ruins. So some of its settings, I thought, in Voice of Terror were more effective, but I think this felt like we talked about earlier. Holmes is more Holmes in this one, you know. I felt like. Uh, the story's a little tighter. I just think it the plot it, it unfolded better in this one than in the one before it. You know, so even though I like Voice of Terror, I think I like this one a little more. I understand. I understand. Mm-hmm. Beth, Beth, on the one to ten scale. I mean, I don't know that you think in these terms when we're looking at movies, but uh, on the one to ten scale, I can't remember what I gave the last one. Um, I think we all fell in the six and I was seven. Thinking around six and yeah, yeah. yeah. No. I I have a hard time. I like. This one a little bit better than the last one. Okay. So I would say seven mm-hmm. up to eight. Um, I'm looking for Sherlock, and so mm-hmm. the last yeah. one was a good film in that, it, but it was it was more. It was a little lighter on the Sherlock. Right. Sure. There were some great performances. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, the the guys who played the bad guys were mm. really good, and we got a lot more bad. But we had, you know, there was a lot more bad guy because mm-hmm. there was a lot more going on. Um, so because I'm big on the Sherlock part, I think that's why this one appeals to me more mm. than the other, even though it might have been a better shot or better directed. Eh, well, movie. the thing, the thing, the... There's something that you're, you just brought up that I hadn't really thought about. In the last film, we had what could be considered a real mystery in that we didn't know who the bad guy was. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas once, mm-hmm. as you said, mm-hmm. Troy, hit the yeah. halfway point, boom, yeah. Moriarty, guess what? We know who the bad guy is. There's no mystery involved mm-hmm. in that anymore. Right. The, 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 the mystery is going to be just how to how to outwit him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and plus uh, you bring Moriarty and Lestrade and all that in. I mean, you're just making it more and more like this feels more yeah. like a show. Like so, world. Yeah. That's the word I was looking for. It's more... Homey. Mm. It's more. It it well, has. We spent so much time at Baker Street. Right. So, it yeah. has more. Uh, it touches a Sherlockian. Yeah. Or more because it gets more into that home feel of Sherlock. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the other one was it, it was. It seemed a little bit different world. Understood. understood. So I mean, it it may be, it makes sense, it's, and it's making me wonder now because I know I'm already looking forward forward to the next film. Well, not forward in that I'm like super anticipating it, but I do wonder: do we? I mean, how much time do we spend in uh, Baker Street in the next yeah. film? I do not wonder much, about based that. on its title. You'd think not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's going to be interesting. Uh, I give this one a. It's it's that split the difference between a six and a seven. That's always the hardest. Thing yeah, for it really is. Anyway, that's the toughest. We part. we've talked about this before, where it's just mm-hmm. like it's it's one that I it's I, I I like I enjoy. It's a question of we're talking about a series of uh, of programmers, a, a series mm-hmm. of mystery films, and it's a question of well, how much variation is there? Which mm-hmm. one which one really stands out? Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, this one it feels in some ways better, and in some ways. Not as good, you know. It, it, there are things that I've liked about the first two of these Sherlock Holmes films in the '40s hmm. that I've liked more in each, you know, each film. But yeah. I, so I ended up, I ended up giving it uh, a seven. It mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got, you know, if nothing else, Lionel Light will yeah. cook it. Yeah. So yeah. you yeah. know. Yeah. Anytime well, those in those you know the the movie cooks on on a, in, a, in a number of different spots, but never more than those scenes when 
Holmes and Moriarty are bashing yeah. heads. It's yeah. a great move. I and mean, you it's just have to remember if you're grading on a bell curve, you have to throw my vote out because it's got Sherlock in it, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm always going to grade those higher. Well, I mean, it's 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 something that you love. I mean, it's it's the same way. Uh, it's the same way. A good friend of mine. He always used to, he he would uh, he would be he would be talking about some incredibly awful mm-hmm. piece of glorious European trash, and he'd say it's a nine out of ten, maybe maybe even a ten, and you're just looking at him and going, "You are mad. <laughs> you are completely insane." You know, he's he's the guy who gives pieces a ten. Yeah, perfect film, nothing wrong. You know, and it's just one of those. Ah, yes, it's it's not so much a bell curve as a reverse bell curve. You know. Yeah. Well, all right. So that's our second Sherlock Holmes film. Uh, hang loose, people. We will eventually get to the the horror section of mm-hmm. the Sherlock Holmes movies. I do promise you. Uh, eventually, it happens. Yeah. I promise. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, uh, we'll uh, we'll wrap up the discussion of this particular Sherlock Holmes film now, and uh, we'll uh, take a break. Come right back, and we'll tell you what we'll be doing next. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. This podcast takes no shortcut in producing outstanding content. How they haven't become more widely recognized is beyond me. I love this show. Smart commentary, in-depth interviews, and great production. It's obvious how serious these guys take their podcast and bring that next level of professionalism that anyone would be hard-pressed to match. There are few things better in life than listening to people who are both passionate and knowledgeable about their subject matter. The Projection Booth with their wide and wild range of film discussions, is one of those things. Simple as that. The Projection Booth is the highest quality film podcast around. I love the focus on cult films, witty, informative banter, and amazing interviews. The Projection Booth is the best podcast out there, if you're a serious film lover. The Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. All right, folks, once again, thank you for coming and listening to us talk about this particular movie. Troy and I will be back uh, to continue this 1940s Universal Horror series and get back into the horror, we promise. (laughs) Uh, As a matter of fact, full bore uh, monster movie next time. Yeah, one of the great ones. Uh, A true classic. The next time Troy and I record uh, for this series, we'll be talking about, uh, what's the name of this? Oh, well, it's something, uh, uh, something meets uh, somebody. Um, uh, oh, yeah, wait, wait, wait. I've got a guy. Yeah, I've got a guy. <laughs> Dead guy meets fuzzy guy. <laughs> uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, Yay. people. The, came out, it came out in March of 43. The first Monster Mash. It's true. This is the first yes. time we get that yeah. combination of mm-hmm. monsters. Mm-hmm. Of course, this, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the film that inspired... Uh, the, the great Paul Nashi so of course this is a special uh, special film for Troy and I yeah and uh, it's more than that for a lot of us uh, remember this is uh, also directed by Roy William Neal so we get to talk about uh, mm-hmm. Roy William Neal creating the creepy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. inspired me to do my song <laughs> yeah, oh right. yeah that's true I've <laughs> forgotten about uh, that's right <laughs> this is the movie that, yeah yeah Beth wrote a song that was uh, inspired by the uh, the knockdown drag out fight that, uh, that, uh, mm-hmm. t- that ends this sucker and the exotic ones put music to it now thank you put it at the end of one of your other podcasts. I have, I have. Yeah. You had, a you Ghost had, of Frankenstein that you put it at the end of? I cannot remember to save my life. We but you know what? If you've, got, if you've got another recording of it, I'll put it at the end of that show. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm easy. 
<laughs> I just like to present stuff to folks yeah. and hope to stay likes it. Mm-hmm. But uh, next time out, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Of course, that means it'll probably be in November when we talk about that movie. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, we like to skip the Halloween yeah. season for the monster movies. Yeah. But yeah. that's because... when you're watching the Halloween movies. That's yeah. when you're watching. You should be able to watch and talk at the same time. It's it's yeah. it's the it's the classic chew gum and fart thing. I mean, you should be able to do both, right? Is that is that, am I wrong? Is that no. right? Is that the way that is? Is yeah. that mistranslated from the Armenian? Did I get that right? No, it's not right. Nevertheless, uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Then uh, before the end of the year, we're going to have another Beyond Nashy episode mm-hmm. over on the other podcast mm-hmm. feed. Uh, we still haven't settled on exactly what film it will be. Maybe a Jess Franco movie. Uh, maybe at 90s. 90s. Yeah, maybe we're talking about doing something a little more modern, so we'll see. We'll see, we'll see. But uh, not a 1990s Jess Franco film. No, That's I don't think we want no, to. No, no, I, I, should, I wanted to clarify real quick <laughs> yeah. that uh, if somebody was thinking we were going to delve into those uh, shot on video in, you know, in, in, one, the, room and yeah, in one room in, uh, in you know, Lena Romay's apartment, it's, yeah. no, it's, it's, that's not happening. I, yeah. I, I don't want to. You know, when when the most interesting thing to me is studying the bookshelf to see what they were reading, <laughs> we're probably we're probably going to move on from You're there. You're crazy, but, but not that crazy. I'm not going to do that. So, once again, just want to thank Beth for being here yeah. for the Sherlock Holmes episodes, as always. And we would like to make sure that you're aware that uh, coming up not too soon after this episode drops, she and I will drop another episode where we play a couple of old-time radio Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, she's going to pick out a couple more. I'm assuming that one of them will probably be an adaptation of uh, The Adventure of the Dancing Men. Yeah, I'm trying to find the best one okay. of that. Mm-hmm. So there's several different uh, radio shows that are The Dancing Men. So I'm just going to listen to them again and see which one's actually the best. Cool, cool. So keep your ears peeled for that. We'll get to that. Uh, I can't promise. Ain't no telling. Because Lord (laughs) knows my editing (laughs) skills are uh, (laughs) slow in coming. I'm just, I can't devote too much time to it. People work eats up the day. Nevertheless, thank you once again for listening to the show. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And I'm Beth Morris. And we will talk to you again soon. Germany wanted the Tobel bombsite. We'll send her thousands of them in RAF planes. Yes. Thanks to Mr. Sherlock Holmes. And to Mrs. Tobel. And of course, Inspector Lestrade. Oh, uh, that's all right, miss. Things are looking up, Holmes. This little island's still on the map. Yes. This fortress, built by nature for herself. This blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England.